When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hi guys, I'm May and welcome to the second season of Phenomenal and Asian, a podcast aimed to redefine the Asian stereotype and share inspirational stories of those doing phenomenal things. This week's Phenomenal Asian is Howard Watt, a partner at one of the leading law firms. Howard and I bonded over the fact that we both pleased our Asian parents by choosing traditional and stable career paths, unlike our siblings. But this didn't stop us from discovering and going after what we were truly passionate about. Howard is now an incredibly successful partner, specialising in venture capital transactions, and I left accountancy to go start my own company. Unfortunately, we did have some technical issues when recording this episode, so it is a little shorter than normal, but it's still amazing and I hope you enjoy. It's funny that you picked up on the accent because a lot of people do because it's so... It's so kind of, um, if I can say this, bastardized from a bunch of different yeah. people now, and it t- it picks up a bunch of different influences, and as a result, you can't really tell how it originated, and and what, you know, what, what, it's it's just like an eclectic mix of things that I, <laughs> I think I've just sort of picked up, um, almost unconsciously. But in terms of originally mm. where it's from, and as soon as I say this, a lot of people start to say, "Oh, I can hear it now underneath." Um, I was actually born in Sunderland in the northeast. Um, and, then, yeah. and then very rapidly moved to um, to Newcastle. So I don't remember any time in Sunderland. So I think we moved when I was, you know, very, very young. Um, and then we so, so I grew up basically in Newcastle, which is, you know, pretty much the same from an accent perspective, um, but very much not the same from a footballing perspective. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I love that. Yeah. I went so, to Newcastle um, uni. So I oh, really? I okay. can hear. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, there you go. Okay. Well, then you then you'll know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Um, and yeah, so I grew up in I grew up in Newcastle. So um, so I had um, I did actually have the very very strong Geordie accent. And I think the first, yeah, the first, um, the first time that I started to lose that and and the accent, I guess, started to change was when you know my my parents, typical Asian parents, sent me to a um, sent me to a private school in um, in in Newcastle. And I just got relentlessly bullied for my accent because obviously they all talked in a slightly more, you know, uh, po- no way. posh way, I suppose is the best way of putting it, or well-spoken. Yeah. Whereas I was coming in with this really, really strong accent. And so I just remember 
I just remember sort of being made made fun of in terms of the way I talked and it's it sort of being a conscious thing in my head. And, you know, bear in mind, I was like seven years old, eight years old at this time. And I, I but I do have this very distinct memory of being really confused as to why they thought this was so funny that I would sort of pronounce words differently. Um, and so I think it, even back then it was a kind of a, okay, so, so maybe I should be speaking differently. And, and I think even subconsciously at that stage, I started to think about adjusting, the, I guess, the intonation of the way that I spoke. Has anyone ever got it right? Um, <laughs> no, they haven't. I've, I've had so many wrong answers. It's unbelievable. I've had Canadian, Australian, New Zealand, American, Scouse I've even had. You know, I've had every, every conceivable suggestion under the sun, but nobody, nobody hits it right on the head. And like going back to like, you know, Newcastle, do you think it was more the accent or do you, did you actually stand out because you were maybe the only Asian person in Newcastle, I'm guessing? Um, well, I, we would, I mean, we would, I think, honestly, and this is, this is sort of goes a little bit, um, not against, I guess, the, the subject that we're talking about, but it's not been something that's, it's not been something that's stood out to me in a really big way or not something that affected me in a really big way is probably a better way of putting it because although looking back and thinking back um i was almost certainly um the only kind of chinese kid in my in my school and in my class you know my parents as typical asian parents are always used to just you know on the weekends or on the evenings bring you to other chinese families houses right so you had all this exposure to other chinese families and other chinese kids so you wouldn't feel like oh i look so different and why do i look so different and there's nobody else here around me right. you would all you'd have your kind of fair share of okay so we're seeing this chinese family and their chinese kids and this chinese family and their chinese kids and then when you go to school and don't see them it, it doesn't feel like such a weird thing you just sort of think okay so there are a bunch of different people around and some of them look like me and some of them don't and it never really i don't think i really ever sort of connected the dots all that well as far as um the, the kind of me being noticeably different from other people because i didn't you know born born in the uk i never had i never had kind of the strong accent or anything that that would i, I suppose yeah. stereotypically give me away as as chinese right and so aside mm. from like a really good use of chopsticks but, but <laughs> Um, and and that is actually my my uh, one of my earliest memories I think of of um, of being Chinese as opposed to non Chinese or Caucasian or whatever or whatever you call it is that we had this we did something in the the primary school I was in so this would have been kind of age five or six where they were talking about um, I think it probably was Chinese New Year or something and they did mm -hmm. sort of a game where people had to like um, pick up. Uh, pick up little pegs using a pair of chopsticks and obviously when it came to me I was just there like just merrily just <laughs> all while everyone's there sort of struggling to even grip the chopsticks and stuff and I think that was my first sort of awareness of okay so there's there's something that I can do that other people have trouble doing and and why is that and and then you sort of connect mm -hmm. it to you connect it to the race thing um, but other than that I'll be honest there wasn't really anything that 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 kind of that's great though. yeah I mean it's it, it is good but then on the flip side again when I think back to it, I got bullied, you know, the same way as everybody else did. You know, I had the kind of, you know, the chinky chonky Chinaman jokes and, and all of those sort of things. And I can't tell why my reaction to it wasn't more, wasn't stronger and wasn't mm. more visceral. I think if I try to think about it, it, it see it feels to me as if it's because, you know, it, and before I went to the private school, it was I went to like a pretty rough um, state primary. And, and, you know, the teachers basically told my parents they had to get me out of there. Um, but I went to a pretty rough state state primary. And in that state primary, you know, everybody got bullied, right? Everybody got bullied for one thing or the other. Everyone was always getting in fights and stuff. So, so it true. never seemed as if 
I was targeted. It just seemed like, okay, so this is my thing, right? The, this guy's thing is because yeah. he's fat. This guy's thing is because he's quiet. My thing is because I look different, right? And so it was, it was never a sort of, it was never a, I'm mm. being specifically targeted as much as I'm being bullied for whatever it is that I look or, or, or appear right. different from other people. But that was no different from somebody who was, you know, a little bit quieter or somebody who was a bit overweight or someone who had a stutter or whatever. You know, people used to make fun of, of one of my best friends who had ginger hair for having ginger hair. So, you know, yeah. it, it didn't yeah. occur to me that it was sort of linked to race. And I think that that's, I would say that that's in a good way, probably stuck with me in the sense that I don't feel it's ever really been that that big of a burden for me, if that, if that kind of makes sense. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And I wonder whether if you were educated now in terms of racial abuse, that you would take it more personally, whereas as a child, you, you, you did just kind of ignore it and you were naive about it in a good way and it didn't like affect your upbringing or childhood yeah yeah i agree and i think that that's um i mean it's interesting in in sort of the current um the current climate i guess in the almost i kind of take almost like the the the, the morgan freeman approach to to the sort of the the racism um uh, mm. thing which is that how do you stop it is you stop talking about it right you kind of you you kind of get on with mm. things and you don't you try not to make it such a big thing and and in a way i suppose that that suggests there's a suggestion there that that's how that's how consciously or subconsciously things went for me is that i never picked up on it as a directly as something that was directly linked to my race and as a result i didn't grow up with that thought that when people say these things to me it's a specific it's like a discriminatory thing if you know what i mean as as i don't yeah. i didn't see it any different from somebody who was somebody yeah. who was a bully who wanted to make fun of somebody would say okay that person's fat or that person's short or that person's yeah. you know ugly or whatever it is that they want to pick up on and, and my thing is oh so you're chinese that means your eyes look funny um yeah it kind of seemed like the the less of, of the evil yeah yeah like, it, exactly <laughs> and, I, and I do remember you know getting angry at some of those things but then kind of checking myself and wondering why I was angry if that made sense because when someone mm. does the thing with the eyes you know the the pointing of the eyes make your yeah. eyes look it's not it's not that funny it doesn't hurt it doesn't make you feel bad about the shape of your eyes you know it didn't it none of that none of that triggered anything in me if that makes sense and i'm not really i can't really yeah. picture i can't really grasp why it didn't but I, I, i'm glad yeah. it didn't if that makes sense i mean for me it just doesn't make sense asian eyes aren't even like that do you yeah. know what I mean? like, so i guess culture wise you was a very kind of asian household and you know you ate asian food and like did your parents kind of instill that Asian yeah. culture. Yeah. So I mean within the household it was it was so stereotypically Asian. I imagine everything I say there's just gonna be, you know, nodding of heads across the land for anybody who's listening <laughs> to this podcast because, you know, rice with every meal, right? Uh, white rice with every meal. Um, you know, there was there was always an endless supply of ramen noodles that were in the in the in the yeah. Exactly, an endless supply of those, um, and you know we everything else. I think that's fairly stereotypical for for an, uh, an Asian family is that everything is everything is cooked in a Chinese way. So even if it was like English food, it would be mm. cooked, it would be stir fried, or it would be kind of you know sort of mixed together and stir fried with some kind of 
always an egg. There's always an egg involved. I don't think. I don't know why. Yeah, That's there why wasn't as much egg in ours, but it was. There was just always, you know, everything was just if it's whatever meat it was, you stick a veg with it, and then you stir fry it with some soy sauce, and then bang, that's your that's your dish, and then you add a side of white rice, and <laughs> and off you go. And so we never had, you know, so so there are some things that are that are and remain slightly foreign to me, which is you know things like your Sunday roasts and your um you know fish Friday and stuff like that. I I never got any. I never understood any of those things, and I never. I never thought, you know, so for me now, like a roast is a real kind of, like, ooh, we're having a roast. Where for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, we did this like every Sunday we're growing up. So it's, um, you know, whereas for, for, for people like you and me, it's probably more like, oh, we had rice every day. So now it's kind of a case of I just don't want any more rice ever. I just don't want like a side of white rice. I'm just sick. It's completely sick of it. So, so yeah, very, very stereotypical asian culture within the household um you know they they kind of were very they were quite tiger parenty my parents as far as as far mm -hmm. as working hard and you know it was the it was the asian trifecta right it was like you'll be a doctor a lawyer or accountant and that was you know, that was the that was the <laughs> thing right so it's it's that was those those are kind of my choices in life and uh, uh, i ended up with option two so so yeah the choices that your parents gave you actually did enjoy one of, yeah, one of yeah, the yeah exactly so <laughs> i i became an accountant there you go number three <laughs> and <laughs> absolutely hated it worked for pwc for like four years and then i quit and now i own my own oh, fantastic. startup so totally know what you mean and the same with me and my brothers i was the i'm the last so i'm the third and my brother did medicine and quit the second one i don't even know what he studied i think he studied business or something and then and so all of their hopes were pinned on me so i <laughs> exactly, had to go down yeah, the exactly. road just get the certificate on the yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, and then, the and then you did it for a few years <laughs> and then hopefully they kind of calm down and and gradually acknowledge yeah. that you are one percent of an adult and that you, you can yeah. you can make one percent of your own decisions and then that kind of allows you a little bit of freedom i suppose but uh and what about your um like i'm always interested about like your parents how did they come to the uk my dad is from mainland china he's from he's you know he talks he talks in in great tones about how he was raised on a pig farm in rural china uh, my mom got a degree from she came over okay. and and she was a teacher in in hong kong and then she came over and she did her degree with the open university and became kind of a, a businesswoman mm. um, and she uh, at one point had a, a travel agency that sort of specialized in assisting um, people from uh, Hong Kong and China come and uh, immigrate into the UK um, and so that was sort of, that was one of the big things that mm. she did and then off the back of that she also started a, um, a business with a partner of hers which was sort of the first incarnation of um, Chinese fast food um, outlet mall type of you know food court places mm. as opposed to your you know your stereotypical chinese takeaway which um which you know i think they they both had their time working in a chinese takeaway when they first moved to the uk before we were born mm. and even in the first couple of years of when we were born um but then later on um she when she did set this up and it was it was called walk and roll which is just a fantastic oh, no way. and it was uh, and it was in, yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and it was in it was in the metro center in newcastle and it was ridiculously popular. I mean, it was more popular than Burger King. It was wow. more popular than KFC. It had people queuing out the entire food court no just way. to go there. And I worked there a couple of summers, and it was um, and it was great, and it was incredibly popular, and it was a really, really good idea. And it was really kind of the early inception of that idea because nobody ever really did that before. 
And then I think some yeah. people tried to, they, they, yeah. you know, somebody came to her one day with an offer to franchise it into what became known as Singapore Sam's. And then I don't think that really took off anywhere. And then since then, I guess there've been various sort of um, spin-off versions like um, Walk to Walk and things like that. But the big, I mean, you know, the big success story of somebody trying to do that is Panda Express in the US, right? Actually, my parents are kind of similar. And my dad came over here to to go to uni and he was actually an engineer as well. But then basically he, he started like Chinese takeaways because actually he realized he could yeah. earn more money doing that. And my mum started like a shop selling kind of orient, like importing oriental goods. But it was just like, actually, they were also entrepreneurial. Do you know what I mean? Like kind of finding pockets of opportunity, whether that's food or goods oh, yeah, or yeah, whatever definitely. it is. I think there's, there's, I've got a huge amount of respect for what they did. In our generation, this, the options are just, you know, widely out there. You can learn anything you want. You can find anything you want. You know, we're talking about mm. a, for, for people that can digest this pre-internet times when, you know, they had like a phone book and a, and a, and a, <laughs> and a landline and they had to just go out and kind of do, do all of this stuff themselves. So I've got a huge amount of respect for what they managed to do and what they managed to achieve. And like, do they ever say to you that, um, you know, oh, God, we've worked hard or did they actually think that your generation? Is um, I don't think they've ever been that. I don't think they've ever been that hard on me as far as you know, saying, reminding me of, oh, we, we had to do this and we had to do that. I think they've only ever referred to that in a, in a humorous way more than anything else, just kind of like, oh, you know, back in our day, we never had this and that sort of thing. But they've never, they've never been all that harsh with it. I, I will give them a huge amount of credit in that they've never been, I don't think they've been, they were really strict on us in terms of the whole kind of tiger parent um, education side of things, but never on the cultural side of things. Mm. So uh, there have been occasions where, you know, my dad would have hinted at marrying a Chinese girl and that sort of thing. But there was, there was, mm. you know, there was never a sort of like, uh, never any kind of even a hint of twisting my arm to try and get me to do that. It was, I think there was the very much an acknowledgement in their minds that, they had um, they had had me born and raised in a Western society, and they had to acknowledge that that, that comes with mm. it. That I will be brought in. I'll be brought up with with those kind of influences. So, you know, there's only ever times when in yeah. little pockets of time when I was when I was single that my dad would say, "Well, you know, there's uh, your cousins having a wedding, and they have these, you know, these what do they call it, matching up parties or whatever they have in, in Hong Kong, where they where they kind of <laughs> what sounds like they just bring along all the single people." And stick it with and I was really kind of like that sounds like the last thing that I want to do so you said that you kind of studied abroad yeah. in in Europe and then so yeah talk, talk us I guess kind of up to to being you know a lawyer and and how did you so uh, so I studied law at um at Durham and so I could take my washing back home to my mum <laughs> yeah and then after I did the exchange year and came back and graduated um the the path into law is is already sort of to some extent set in stone a little bit in that the year before I went abroad I'd already sort of signed up for kind of vacation schemes and um, and as soon as you do a vacation scheme with a firm, you increase your likelihood of getting a training contract with that firm. Um, and that was a firm um, based down in London called Oldswang, which has since merged with um, a couple of other law firms to become what's now known as CMS Cameron Nabarro Oldswang or something like that. Um, and so I ended up doing a training contract there oh, and wow. qualifying um, qualifying in, uh, as a lawyer in 2006. And then, um, and then uh, moved firms a couple of times and then ended up going kind of what the tradition well not the traditional but one of the one of the well-trodden paths of being a lawyer is you either stay and you become a partner or you go in-house and you work 
warehouse for a, for a company and, mm. and you no longer have to do timesheets and, and billable hours and all that sort of thing. And so I did that uh, about five years qualified. I moved to um, Fidelity, the asset management company, um, and I ended up working in-house there mm -hmm. for about six years. And it was actually there that I, I actually just fell into venture capital because that's where they sat my desk because they didn't really have a desk. So they stuck me in with the venture capital team oh, because, wow. um, you know, as my boss put it, he was like, you guys are all the same age and you'll probably hit it off. And and we don't have a desk for you. So get yourself in with those guys. So I ended up sitting in there and just learned a huge amount from from sitting sitting with those guys. And that's where I picked up VC. And and that really kind of changed, I think, through the traje trajectory of um, of what I of what I do, because I didn't tremendously enjoy being a generalist corporate lawyer before that. But as soon as I picked up VC, I really kind of took mm. to it, took to it and really liked it. And um, and that's kind of continued to this day. So, you know, that's 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 been the path. You know, when you went into that and, and just even you becoming a lawyer and, and doing um, your previous roles, were there many Asians around you? Like, I guess, in terms of some of the companies that you've worked in. I've certainly I certainly can remember coming across mm -hmm. a lot of um, a lot of Asians. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily underrepresentation in the industry because, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there are some clients that I have that are Asian investment funds. So their entire team, you know, all of the investment principals, their in-house lawyers, or, you know, pretty much all of their team is is Asian and their LPs are probably Asian as well and based based out of Asia. Um, and so there's definitely not underrepresentation. whether or not there's, there's probably a legitimate argument to say there's, there's a little bit of over-representation. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. At PwC, there were a lot more Asians, you know, in other industries. Well, I think what we have to admit is the stereotypical Asian thing of money, right? So it's like you think of as soon as there's a, th a thing that's successful yeah. and is making money, you can you better believe the Asians are going to be like, oh, we're interested. And then if you look at the the kind of the roots of um, the mm -hmm. tech ecosystem as a whole is is really kind of in Silicon Valley in the U.S., and that's, you know, that's West Coast and that's sort of, you know, San Francisco, which has an enormous, um, enormous Asian population. And so I think there's a, a number of different influences, which mean it's not surprising to see quite a lot of Asians represented in the, in the tech community, um, which, 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 is, which is great. And so it never, it never occurs to me or never becomes a thing where I sort of think I'm the only Asian kicking about or I'm the only Asian who, um, who's, who's doing this or in this ecosystem or involved with this sort of thing. But I think, you know, the thing that I, I think, you know, when, when we spoke about this podcast originally, the thing that really sprung to mind is something that um, is more on the cultural side of things because, Somewhere I do think and have always thought and continue mm. to think there is massive underrepresentation is culturally. So, you know, film and TV and 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 those aspects of, of society, I think there's a massive underrepresentation of, of Asians and it's improving, I think, slowly, but it's nowhere near what I would call um, a healthy level of representation because it's still very stereotypical, right? So if I was to think of um fresh off the boat the sitcom right that's, that's that that kind of almost leans into the stereotypes yeah. for humorous purposes and it's great and it's you know i i like i like that the show even exists but in some ways i kind of think that's just going to perpetuate those sort of stereotypes and and never have um never have asians really seen as anything outside of what they've traditionally been seen as and that and that, i think that's the thing that that needs to be broken free from at sometimes um and, you know, going deeper into that in the past, there have been obviously, mm -hmm. you know, when, when I speak about 
the period of time of me growing up and being in London and eventually kind of, you know, getting girlfriends and, and, and getting married and that sort of thing, that definitely was somewhere where I, I sort of experienced being Asian as being a, a negative or kind of a drawback in the sense that, you know, nobody pictures, mm. no, you know, you ask any kind of, uh, I suppose, Western or Caucasian girl or, or even Asian, given your experience, um, to sort of picture or describe or identify their dream guy or their ideal guy. Nobody's going to pick an Asian, right? Nobody is going to say, oh, they're, yeah, you know, six foot tall and they do this and they're into sports and they're Chinese. You know, no, nobody would ever come up with that answer. Um, and I think the reason for that is because there just isn't those, there aren't those kind of um, uh, figures in, in, in film in film and TV. Yeah. So you're never going to be like, you know, for, you know, you're never going to have your mm -hmm. Denzel Washingtons or your, or your kind of, you know, your Brad Pitts that kind of cover, cover the other different races where there's somebody that they can look at and go, wow, that guy's cool. Or that guy's a, a man, or, you know, I can picture myself as somebody who's, who's yeah. got that kind of, you know, that, that charisma and that coolness, but no, you have, you know, you have your Jet Lees with the strong accent and they do karate. And, and I mean, even Bruce Lee, right. Who's, who's, who's always going to be kind of the leading light on the Asian front. Um, I don't think there was ever a thing where he was really sort of painted out as a, romantic leading man character his was all about the kind of the, the kung fu and the karate right so it's hard to break free of that and um i think it's an ongoing thing mm. and it will it will probably take a long time to really break out of that but you know the day that we start to see um regular mainstream chinese male actors um as um as leading men would be uh, would be a really really nice thing to see thanks so much for listening to this week's phenomenal and asian podcast I'll be releasing new episodes every week. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow us on Instagram at phenomenal.asian for all the latest updates. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.